0: Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Hey, 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 let's go, business storytellers. Today, we want to talk about a data driven approach to our customers' hearts, so to speak. I ran across Neil Hoyne. He he actually wrote the book uh, with that same title. So, how about that for a transition? Uh, He's the chief measurement strategist at Google. And you know what? It's always important to me to look at the numbers, what's working, what's not working. I always struggle with how long do I give it to work? You know, I mean, we know the constant battle when it comes to content strategy that can take a while. And sometimes it can go quicker than you thought. Uh, But how long do you give it? So I want to find out uh, what prompted him to write the book. It is available. Uh, There's a link in the show notes. Um, And how do we do that? How do we take a data driven approach Welcome to the show, Neil. Hey, Christoph. Thanks for having me. Give me a fist bump here. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we 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 don't hug anymore because of COVID. Ha ha. Nothing to joke about, obviously. Perhaps, but tell us about. So, first of all, what is a chief measurement strategist, and then what prompted you to write this uh, very interesting book?
1: You know, there's a few things behind it. So, in my role at Google, it's primarily figuring out how companies use data. You know, a lot of collecting data, a lot of systems, a lot of analysts, and by and large, a lot of companies say, I'm not really using that data or I don't see how that data drives growth. And so that's really where I sit is working with 16,000 of our largest advertisers to figure out how they take that data and extract some type of value from it. And when you're listening to all these conversations, there's that thing to say, well, what patterns emerge? And how are those patterns applicable to businesses of all sizes? So the question, where did this book come about? Um, Dare I say a pandemic project, you know, back in February, March 2020, you know, locked inside with two very small toddlers, but started asking that question to say, out of all the lessons that were learned, I've been at Google now for nearly almost 12 years. um, How do we get those lessons out into the world? Now, if we talk about this, if we look at this idea of storytelling, and a lot of people, when they see this idea of data, they're almost on opposite ends of the spectrum. Data should tell a story. It rarely does. And the real the challenge for me on this book was to say, could I make this data? Could I make this information into a story that would make it more accessible? And so people could look at it, not necessarily thinking it's a data book, but really it's a book about storytelling that just happens to be uh, credible because of the data that's behind it. And so that's really what it is. It's a book about business growth, but it's really designed to inspire people about how great data can be when told from the right lens, when told from the right story.
0: It's very interesting. I, I think you kind of hinted at that, right? You have people on different sides of the spectrum. You have people who are data, data, data. And then you have some people over here who are like create, create, create. And certainly I'm a content creator, but and I need to spend time on doing that. be in meetings all day it can't be doing some of those things right that that take a lot of time but i also need to look at the data what's actually working what is uh what kind of messaging are people responding to what kind of stories are people responding to um so where do we find that fine line between and i and i know some companies they have teams where one team does one thing and one team does another but let's assume we we're not all we don't all have that luxury How do we kind of combine those things, you know, to actually do things to win our customers' hearts and also to look at the data in the right amount of time?
1: I'd, I'd say there's a few things we can unpack there. First is let's talk about the companies themselves. I think what companies are realizing is that for far too long, storytelling has been seen as one of those soft skills that are almost an optional or afterthought to the hard technical skills, So essential that you understand cloud infrastructure and machine learning and SQL and massaging and messing with all this data. Oh, and by the way, can you also be a good storyteller? But where that came in in the interview process, where that was actually developed internally was just an afterthought. And I think companies right now are being more deliberate to say it's actually really easy to hire for objective technical skills to be able to train and test those skills But because of that, we're lacking people that can actually take those reports and explain to other people in the organization how they can be used. And equally, somebody that can understand the stories from the frontline salespeople and really explain that value or those opportunities to the people that are working with that data. So to that larger question, we're seeing more and more companies who are saying storytelling needs to be a dedicated function with a deliberate focus, deliberate training and hiring instead of just really looking at it as a secondary skill. Well, you need to be able to communicate and build slides. Everyone's going to raise their hand and say they can do it. And companies are realizing that that approach is falling short. Now, within the context of this particular book, what, what story are we trying to tell? From a very basic level, we're simply trying to connect what's happening with the data to what you already know in real life which is generally, take a look at your, your own life and the people that you know. It's likely that you are going to have different people who mean different things to you. You're going to have friends, family members, close colleagues, people who have made a significant impact on your life, people who you couldn't imagine your life without. And you're also going to have people in your life who are there at a particular moment, maybe transacting with you in a store, helpful in that exchange but not someone you'd go to for advice. Actually, in fact, somebody you might be surprised at to ever see again. Now, that relationship worked at its time, but you understand that different people hold different places and you treat them accordingly. Most businesses don't make that distinction with their customers. They treat everyone based on that moment, that transaction. How much value did I get from you today? Starting over that process almost the next day and the day after. And so really the story behind this book is to say companies can actually look at their relationships with customers and their data very much in the way that we intuitively do it as human beings, that some customers will be worth a lot, so 80% of your value for a business generally coming from 20% of your customers, and understanding who those people are and how you build a life with them, and then also understanding who are the people that they'll they'll come in, they'll buy, but you shouldn't spend a lot of money trying to keep that relationship warm because there's just not a lot of value there for you.
0: Very interesting. And, you know, maybe even, I mean, there's ways to keep relationships warm nowadays through automation, right? And other mm-hmm. things. I mean, I'm thinking about even, I'm an NFL fan and I I've followed the Washington Redskins for the longest time ever, right? You pick your team as an 11 year old and then you, you're you stuck with that team for the rest of your life. I guess that's the theory. I'm,
1: I'm still a diehard <laughs> Chicago Bears fan for that reason. It's
0: <laughs> year after right. year, even though I'm in California. That That's kind of how it goes. But I will very unlikely go to a a game. I mean, every once in a while I do, you know, I find a good uh, flight or whatever or a good deal. But I am the guy who buys stuff online, right? So you can't tell me that my relationship as a customer isn't valuable to them because I buy stuff. I don't buy a season ticket, but they can only fit so many season tickets anyway. So there's certainly different levels. The other thing I found interesting when you talked about the people in your life, I mean, I'm thinking about you can look at my text messages and you can tell me who is the most who are the most important people in my life. Right. I yep. text them more. I was looking at somebody the other day and I, I was texting her and I said, I have not texted her in seven months. <laughs> you know, so kind of so you have that right. The regency, yeah. the, the recency uh, impact, I guess, as well.
1: And And all those stories actually plug into exactly what this book is talking about. For instance, you said. You were a diehard Washington fan. I'm a diehard Chicago fan, at least within the area of sports. It doesn't matter team, good or bad. I'm going to support that team. I'm going to be there. Do they need to spend a lot of money marketing to me? And of course, certainly we know people even in any area of sport that are going to be like, look, I, I don't mind going to a game, watching a race, but I don't necessarily have favorites. I'm not going to buy things from their store. And those represent just different types of customers, different types of relationships for those brands. And it's the same thing when looking at, well, how much have you purchased? Is it simply just that big transaction to be, well, we're going to take care of, in this example, our season ticket holders. But what about the people that will subscribe to programs and offerings online or will buy apparel, buy their hats and their T-shirts, and that income adds up? Now, really what a lot of companies say is they want to understand this. They want that crystal ball. And that's where we have to introduce. And this is covered in the book, but I'll give you kind of a preview of it. This idea of how we can predict how those relationships will turn out. It's like you ever, you ever see somebody and you're always like, well, I, I think this is going to work out. I think we're going to have a great relationship, a great friendship. Imagine doing that in the scope of thousands, if not millions of customers and very accurately saying this is someone that's going to be around and provide a lot of value. Or this is someone, maybe you looked at people before and you say, I don't get along with that type of person and being able to do that for your business as well. And so just imagine if you had this list of customers and all of a sudden you had a number to say, this is how valuable they're going to be in the future. These are the people that no matter how hard you try, it's probably not going to work out. And just think for a moment what you could do with that type of information, how you might customize your automation programs, how you might send out different email campaigns, how much time you might spend with each on the phone just knowing what there is to come back to your business. All of course, backed by the data that you have.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's circle back if we can, you talked about the, the storytelling skill that, that companies are trying to hire and, -hmm. but how does that look? I mean, what are we looking for? And I I still, I think I've quoted Todd Jones when he was on the show um, a few, maybe weeks or months ago. And he said, we don't need any more top of the funnel content. And I said, Todd, I 100% disagree with you. And, and here's the reason why, because I came from journalism and I think there is a new story or, or slightly different story to be told about any topic in the world. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You just talk to different people. You can write about whatever, you know, brand loyalty, which has been covered to death on the internet. But if you can find a different angle with a different perspective, with a different story, You can totally try that. And whether you do an article or a web story or a YouTube video, who cares? But so I disagree with that. But how do we hire storytellers? I mean, what are are, in your mind, what are the qualifications that we need?
1: Well, I, I think for the qualifications where companies are having the most success are finding people who are able to traverse both sides. They're able to speak the business language as well as they are to explain the technical language. It's almost like someone that speaks both English and Spanish, English and French, to be able to cross both boundaries to connect both people, even if you're not perfectly fluent in either. Effectively, you're breaking down silos within organizations. Now, right now, within companies that primarily exist in two roles, people are very good at hiring infrastructure. They're very good at hiring for analysis. But they really need someone to come in to say, all those charts and dashboards that were created, here's the story that those mean to the people that are destined to apply it, finance, sales, operations. And in those cases, the best people to tell those stories are actually people from the front lines of those teams as well that are just a little bit more comfortable with the data that you might expect of an average salesperson. So a salesperson that's really good at selling but understands that organization but also says, I have a little bit of a background in data, enough to start that conversation. Far too often, companies just keep people in their individual silos. Your data and analytics, your business intelligence, your sales, and they don't build the incentives for people to cross those lines together. In fact, one of the best analysts I ever worked with at Google was one that started as a frontline seller. He didn't meet the qualifications to be a full engineer, but what he did in his job was he brought data to his work because it helped him become a better seller. And then when there were opportunities to connect with larger data science teams, they could relate to him and his work because he had that language. And so companies are really just hiring people that are able to traverse both grounds. Now, I I do want to touch on that point, though, that you made about that content and that upper funnel strategy. Let's be clear with a lot of these that it's also companies being able to differentiate strategies and tactics in their work. So tactics would be we want to develop upper funnel content or we want to calculate customer lifetime value, as I mentioned earlier, but they also need to know the strategy is for why they're doing it. We're building upper funnel content because it will allow us to reach consumers at an earlier point in their process where other competitors aren't sitting. Or we're going to invest in customer lifetime value because we think that building these relationships is different than what our market is doing. And then all those tactics fall into play. But oftentimes one of the challenges and weaknesses of data is you're so excited and ready to jump into the data and the spreadsheets, you don't start to figure out why or what's that guiding hypothesis that you're trying to build for your business first.
0: Yeah, the way I think, and I remember who said this on the show. Maybe, uh, maybe it actually was on Real Talk, the Customer Insights Show. I uh, don't remember his name. Who said, you know, top of the funnel content is really future cash flow, right? And I think that's kind of what it comes down to. Is if when you see all these brands that do it really, really well. You know, what they're doing is they're kind of they're going after today's customer, but they're building their brand long term. And I think sometimes uh, people forget about that. And I was going to ask you about that because you said the business language and also, you know, the storytelling language. Now, I've worked with teams where I've said, take a look at this. This PR move really worked well or this content move really worked well. And it did. No debate. You can ask anybody who understands what it's all about that that is the case. And I'm, I'm guessing you can guess where I'm going with this. And this executive said, but how many sales did it immediately lead to? But it wasn't, it wasn't even in that stage of the funnel. How <laughs> yeah. do you... How, and then there was another one, one time. I said, well, here's, I think, what you should be doing. He said, well, I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested in leads. I'm like, well, you can't get any leads because nobody even knows who, who the heck you are. Um, so you got to start somewhere. But how do you cross that line... To, to, to kind of move them along and figure out, you know, you got to have all this type of content. You got to have all these stories. Um, and then we'll look at what's working and what's working short-term, what's working long-term, what's working mid-term, whatever it might be.
1: You, you know, I think about a definition and this, this was not his, but he forwarded to me a, a Wharton professor, Pete Fader, him and I were talking and he, he gave me an interesting definition of marketing, which was and I'm paraphrasing here, the, this is going to sound boring. It's meant more for the finance people, but uh, the cultivation and capture of incoming cash flows. Yeah, that seems like it sucks all the life out of marketing, but it tells an interesting story. For a lot of the people that are looking for direction in terms of those immediate sales, using that example you gave, they're focusing on the capture. People that are interested in buying the product, you generate an interest in the market out of the way you develop the product, free press that you received, and you are there to make sure that when they're ready to buy. You're not going to lose out to say an affiliate program that takes a part of your commissions to another merchant that has a similar product. You are there to make that case, and that's what we tr- generally refer to as performance marketing, right? This is, and it's easy to prove easy ROI. But then you have this question to say, well, what are we doing in terms of cultivating interest for our products? Because if we don't do that, there's not an audience to capture. And that's where I think a lot of those content initiatives, a lot of PR, a lot of branding initiatives fall in. And the reason why I'm clear to make this distinction is because otherwise, if you just group marketing in one big bucket, then you almost have, well, here's marketing where we can prove the immediate ROI and marketing we can't. And you're making this broad case, well, we kind of need to do both of them. And what marketers continually drive is they say, no, I want that accountability. And instead, I like to put it in those two buckets to say, you need something to generate demand, you need something to capture demand, and the way you assess the progress of each must be different, and they're not interchangeable. You can't just put everything to say, we're going to capture demand we haven't created. And sometimes just those mental models gives people enough room to say, you can't make one action look like the other. You can't make great content that's supposed to nurture and develop a relationship and build trust and then say, buy my stuff right now. Any more than I could say 30 seconds into this conversation, be like, hey, it's great. Everybody buy my book. I I don't care. Buy the book if you want to. Don't. There's an excerpt online. Read it. Enjoy it. But you can't pitch that way. There's a right time and a right place. And it's just being able to set those frameworks in place so that other decision makers can see it as a natural part of the process and not an excuse. Not an excuse to say, I can't calculate ROI, but just to say, in these particular areas of business, we're not supposed to either.
0: Yeah. Or it takes a while. I, you know, I, first of all, sometimes when I talk about this, people say, well, he's not interested in the revenue. I'm like, I'm very interested in the revenue, send it on over, happy to take it, take it to the bank. Uh, But when you talk about immediate ROI, I was thinking about um, losing weight, you know, I mean, I could take a bunch of diet pills and lose 30 pounds in the next week, totally unhealthy, but my Mm -hmm. ROI for goodness sake, I've lost all the weight, but it's not going to be sustainable, right? So yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, uh,
1: just, I'm not going to eat for a week. Like, look at that. Like, that is great. And you'd be like, who would do that? That is a ridiculous way to go through life. And you're like, well, how many people throw out aggressive coupon codes when they're behind in volume and say, let's just do it. And you're like, well, wait a minute, you're you're not going to get those sales in the future and you could damage the brand. And now we tie back to that larger area of storytelling. If you simply hand over a dashboard to people and you say, here's our sales and here's our promotional numbers, you realize that there are a number of shortcomings in terms of it. And you realize that a lot of our individual interactions, we are all human beings after all, whether we're measured by computers or face-to-face interactions. Can you tell that story of human behavior about how customers behave? And it's the same thing. Think about it in terms of uh, remarketing campaigns are a great one. Somebody comes to your website, they don't buy and then you immediately hit them with a remarketing campaign. What happens if you send them that remarketing campaign before seventy-two hours? A lot of the published research says that their purchase intent actually decreases. They're kind of creeped out. Hey, yeah, I'm aware of your products. Give me a little bit of space to go on my own way and make my own decision. And that sounds very similar. When I talk to some of my friends who are dating other people, they're like, "It sounds a lot like the three-day rule. You're not supposed to call somebody back until." I guess, three days after the date. Otherwise, you seem a little bit too desperate. You seem like you're stalking them. Give them some space. And we can actually be inspired by a lot of those heuristics because they work really, really well. We just need to be able to tell people those stories in organization so they can connect the dots for themselves.
0: That is actually a very interesting example. We had um, Lila Waite, I believe, on the show from Web Insights. It's been a while. but she, And this is slightly different. But she talked about if somebody fills out a form, I want them to be called in 10 minutes. And But that's different, right? Because I'm literally saying, um, contact me. And if, yeah. you contact- if you're saying contact me, like, I want to call back. <laughs> like, me, like,
1: my wife texts me, call me right now. All right. I know that means 72 hours. No, there's
0: expectations yeah. have been set. Right. But what's interesting about the comment, I get that all the time. I get retargeted the second I look at anything, even when I bought it, right? I mean, talk about the failure and in coding right there. Um, so that's interesting to have to wait. Uh, let's talk about silos for a second here. And you talk about silos. I mean, the, the I would be interested to hear your opinion on this, but I've seen when silos don't work is when everybody has competing goals. I'll give you an example. When a salesperson only gets measured on their direct sales, why would they ever talk to anybody else? They're not encouraged to be a team player, right? I mean, if they only their little thing then why would they ever why would they ever collaborate right there has to be some kind of reason to collaborate whatever that might look like uh, but what have you seen why are silos still a problem why are we still talking about that today
1: in in a larger lens and let's use the kpi goal as an example for a moment if you say, look, you're in charge of this KPI, then you will measure to that and you will optimize your best because that's how your performance is being assessed. But if someone goes and says the opposite, let's break down the silos and create a company wide KPI, then does it give people a place to hide? To say, there's so many people working on this, my work doesn't matter as much. Uh, the same thing when you see silos and you see, uh, you know, very specific resource people say, I want more generalists that can work across marketing, just not paid search or email, or social media, I want them to be able to work across. But then you end up with teams of generalists who are saying, I really wish I had deep expertise in this area. And what you're seeing across a variety of companies, whether we're talking about silos, whether we're talking about expertise, whether we're talking about entrepreneurial and startup with a, is a Silicon Valley thing, move fast and break things, or very structured and risk reducing processes, both sides have value silos can have value. Decentralized systems can have value. Specialization or generals can have value. Where I think companies work best is when they have leaders that can not only recognize where the company is, but also work to manage that tension. So using that example of silos, if silos are inhibiting growth, then they need to be broken down and some of those KPIs need to be joined. But the solution may not be that everyone in the entire company has their silos distributed, and now anybody can interact with anyone else. You may look at some of those processes in your organization and say, why does it take us six or eight months to get something done? I wish we could run, say, an experiment or a change to our campaign within a few days. And to recognize that tension and to say, we need parts of our organization and areas where we can be entrepreneurial, breaking the rules and the processes in order to encourage growth, but at the same time recognizing that some of those processes do save time. And so what I'm almost giving permission to the audience here is to say that there is a certain tolerance or tension in the middle where these processes can exist. There can be silos, there can be generic and specialized functions, and they're all okay. There's no right or wrong answer to it, which is I think what companies try to find. They're like, we want to break down all of our silos. Now, how about we just work on getting two or three teams to collaborate a little bit better and then see what Progress that brings us? Let's bring some joint KPIs and see how we what we learn from that process. By and large, the best companies are the ones that can manage both sides of it to realize there's benefits, but only from keeping people organized into groups, but also at time knowing when those groups need to be broken apart.
0: So, but do you think that is because people are, um, I mean, when I grew up, right, there was a right or there was a wrong answer. And today there's a gazillion answers. So like yeah. I mentioned the example of web stories earlier, you know, I'm like, I don't know if it's right to do web stories. I'm trying them because I'm seeing people ranking with them for stuff they're not ranking for currently. So I'm doing them. Uh, But there's no right or wrong answer if web stories or any topic, honestly, are the right thing to do for your brand. So, I mean, is there what kind of parting thoughts do you have on how do people break out of the right or wrong answer mindset. I think it's very hard because I'm very black and white. I mean, I, no, that's, I love that's I
1: we, you, you know? we, we love that. We love that. I worked with a gentleman on our engineering team who had his uh, PhD in astrophysics. And I, I, I was always a little bit disparaging to my own work, just saying like, you're doing hard work. I get people to click on pictures. And he pointed out that in the world of marketing, the world of business, unlike his world in physics, uh, there are no laws of our universe. People's behaviors and propensities, whether they're employees or customers, will change over time, and it's a challenge of marketers to figure out how to adjust accordingly. It's a challenge of business people to figure out how to adjust, And but part of that is saying that there isn't a right answer that we can find. If we can run a perfect test to say this is how customers will always behave, it doesn't exist. It's a very dynamic and fluid conversation. And because of that, really what has to happen is a little bit of pressure has to come off leaders to say there is a right or a wrong approach, as much as it is to say there's benefits and there's weaknesses. Both represent alternate sides, perhaps, of the universe, very process-oriented versus very entrepreneurial, but both have benefits and both have weaknesses. And it's being able to move back and forth across based on what the situation requires. Where I see the most devastating circumstances are companies implementing processes where they're never going to work. We're all going to sit in a room today and figure out innovation for our next product. Is that really how it works? Or we're all going to sit in our tight silo and we're going to figure out the best paid search campaigns, maybe, but is that the best way to connect with the entire business? And so I think just leaders recognize that there is no right or wrong answer, and they try to destroy those ideas inside their company that allow those, those binary viewpoints to persist.
0: Very, very interesting. Definitely a lot uh, to to mull over. Um, Good luck with the book. It looks like it's doing pretty well. Number 14 in customer relations, uh, not new releases, but all, all books in that category. So that's always great to see. Really appreciate you sharing your insights today, Neil.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win.